Let's open up Ephesians chapter 3. I'll read verse 20 to chapter 4, verse 3. We'll just leave that up there for a moment. Okay, here we go. Paul says this, speaking of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the call into which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word like always, God. We thank you, God, that there is a higher calling for every Christian, Father God. And that you urge us, as Paul urges us, we can feel the promptings of the Holy Spirit to work out this salvation with fear and trembling as we maintain the unity that the Holy Spirit has given us through Christ's work of redemption on the cross, God. And to maintain it, to keep it, to honor it, to cherish it, to nurture it, God. Let nothing ever get in the way of maintaining the unity of the Holy Ghost, Father God. Let every Christian hear and bow their heart before the Lord to be blessed are the peacemakers. God, let us do everything in our power with all humility and all diligence, watching over our hearts at all times so that we can maintain the unity of the Spirit which Christ Jesus himself came to earth to accomplish by his death and his resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. To him be the glory in the church. Can we have that sign we've been working off of for the last several weeks? All right, there we are. No matter what you've been through, or done, God's love can forgive and heal you if you turn to the living Jesus. That's a great sign. And as I shared a couple weeks ago, uh, that part of the sign is theologically correct. The fine print, though, is not. Today's church is a scam. Uh, Well, part of that's right, too, unfortunately. But the back of the sign, I didn't get a chance to take a picture of the back, and I haven't been in Times Square The other side says, you don't need a local church and you don't need a pastor. And a couple of other words he says along those lines. And so it's interesting, I ran into this gentleman on the street and I shared with him, I went over to him, me and my wife, and I said, uh, he looked at me, he says, uh, uh, Jesus loves you, man. And he was genuinely sincere, he looked at me with sincerity in his eyes, I thought it was anyway. And then I told him, I'm born again and I'm a local pastor. And then he said, then why are you living such a selfish life? And so... It's interesting, I ran into this, this gentleman while I was preparing this sermon on church life. And uh, so I want to continue to speak on this. We can get rid of our friend's sign over here. Get back with our text. I chose this text because when I saw that sign, it's interesting that his theology would never pass the acid test of Scripture at all. And... Glory of God in the church and in Christ Jesus is what I've been speaking about. And you can't get a clearer understanding of the glory of God in Christ and the church than the book of Ephesians. 
glorious doxa, and it speaks about God's splendor, His majesty, His 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 brightness, His His praise, His honor, His His immense greatness. It's it's a word that tries to capture everything God is. It's hard to do. It's not a visual. It's not audible. You can only capture it with the mind and then with the heart. Paul says, and we've been speaking about this, God's glory in Christ Jesus and in the church. The church and the church life, that's what we're doing today, is this church life, is not about us. It's truly about showcasing the glory of God's power and wisdom in redemption. To take this whole fractured universe and bringing it back together as he says in chapter 1 verse 9 that God is summing up all things in the universe through one man, Christ Jesus. All his work on the cross is about unifying the fractured universe. We also benefit from this because we're recipients. And I'll share from the first person in my own life. We're recipients of a deeper social life. Prior to coming to Christ, I was one. I had a lot of friends, a lot of acquaintances. But let me tell you something. By God's word, I was one superficial human being. I had friends, had family. But you know something? There was no deep connection. Something was still missing. And when I came to Christ, I found this deeper social life. One that my earthly social life and my earthly family could never give me, ever. This eternal love and gratitude for what Christ has done for us touches much deeper than anything this world could ever offer. As a matter of fact, church life is, 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 is an introduction to the eternal social order we will have. When you compare this to hell, and don't miss it, which, be an, which is an isolated, solitary confinement away from the presence of God and all social beings and all friendships to think that they will live eternal, solitary confinement away from the presence of God and all all other human life. And you and I will enjoy, because of Christ, not just our relationship with God, but our relationship with one another. I really believe the church, and this is why I've been teaching on the church, that Christians are missing this deeper life that touches one another. As a pastor, that concerns me and John. It's not about just coming to church. God doesn't want you to come to church. I don't want you to come to church. The Holy Spirit wants you to know you are the church. That we are a living entity, a dynamic that, that gives God glory. When we get together and we care for one another and, and we befriend one another and we carry each other's burden, that's the glory of God. That's how God is recognized. When we look at redemption, and then we see redemption being played out in our own little personal lives, God sees this, and He's glorified. And understand, when God's glorified, God's not glorified because the whole world recognizes that the church is doing something. God's not care about what the unbelieving world thinks. God's glorified because He knows what's motivating you and me to touch each other's life is His redemption. 
We don't have to go around telling the world God's glorified, God's glorified. He doesn't care. God's not insecure. I don't know if you know that. But when he sees people that naturally have no inclination towards one another, now coming together and sharing their lives from different backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities and socioeconomic places, and we come together and we all bring our needs and we all bring our gifts together, this glorifies God. So glory in the church and glory in Christ is this. Glory in Christ is the root. The church is the fruit. The work of redemption. God is glorified in Christ, as Paul is teaching, in the work of redemption. Unifying the whole cosmos again. Bringing it under the order of God. And the church is the fruit of of all that selfless work of Christ. So Paul can say, not like our friend in Times Square, you don't need a church, you don't need a pastor. Paul would disagree with that. Jesus would disagree with that. Every good Christian would disagree with that. No Christian would theologically say, Amen to that. But yet, as I shared the last couple of weeks, my concern as a pastor is when my heart is not involved in the church. And church is something that, it, it becomes like the gym. It's filled with good intentions. How many people here have a membership to the gym that you don't use? <laughs> but you keep paying because, because you want to go. How about the diet? That'll be coming out in January, the new diet. Remember the one you didn't do last year or the year before? Church life becomes a good intention. And many Christians never enter into the genuine sweetness of church life. Deep friendships. Eternal friendships. Joy, as Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and we mourn with those who mourn. When, when I watch God blessing someone's life, I go home and I, I'm in tears. I'm in tears. That's, that's all it means to me. God's blessing someone's life and they're... And they're sharing that with me. Well, someone's hurting. And God says, let him cry on your shoulder because he's really crying to me. Carry that burden for me, Brian. I'm not there now. I'm in heaven, Brian. I'm their high priest and I'm their savior. I'm the friend that's closer than a brother. But, but they, need, they need a hug now, Brian. Mourn with them. The immense value of spiritual friendships as brothers and sisters in Christ is undervalued in the church today. And though we would never agree with that gentleman's sign, in practice many times we do. A parent, or parents that are Christians, and, and, and church life, and church growing up, and being part of a member of the church, if, if the children don't see that, we can be sending the same signal that our friend is telling everybody in Times Square. You don't need a church. You don't just sit under pastoral leadership. It's not all that important. We might not say it with our mouth, but the sentiments are there. And that's my concern. I truly believe that many Christians miss this dynamic of God's grace. And church becomes no more than just that gym membership. Many good intentions this year. It never really serves its purpose. 
We are here to worship God. And as you and I do that, please, it's like a pyramid. I use this many times in marriage counseling. But it's for the church. For marriage, for husbands and wives. When a husband and wife individually grows closer to God, guess what they're doing? They're getting closer to each other. So the answers in many marriages is not just counseling or do it better. Worship God better. Get closer to God. And as you're getting closer to God, marriages get closer to one another. While the church, from all our different backgrounds, are worshiping God, and we're getting closer to God, we should be getting closer to one another. It comes down to worship. You were created to worship. I was created to worship. And honestly, if we're not worshiping God, something will get in the way. There's a void when there's no genuine worship. I have to worship something. Whether myself or something the world has given me, or some kind of lust of the flesh or lust of the eyes or, or, or the, the desires of life, something has to fill the void if I'm not worshiping God. You can be a Christian and you can worship God for many years and all of a sudden you can start drifting. As the writer of Hebrews teaches us in chapter 2 of Hebrews, be careful that you do not drift away. So understand when I preach, I'm preaching not just from the text. This is something that lives within my heart and John's heart and the leaders' hearts. We want to see people genuinely united and reunited with God and with themselves and with other Christians. So even though a Christian would agree with this man's signs, unfortunately, it could be there. I'm going to end my introduction with this. And I ask you to hear me. To the degree we value church life and the degree we value church leadership, something our friend doesn't care about, we value our own souls and we value God's glory. I want to say it again. To the degree we value church life, community life, and I'll speak about the ups and downs in our text today, so I'll, I'll get to the ups and downs. There's a lot of house cleaning that needs to be done that Paul's talking about here. To the degree we value church life and one another, we value our own souls and God's glory. I really want you to think about that. I can, I, I can stretch that principle to the degree you value the word of God to the degree you value worship, to the degree you value forgiving people, to the degree you value being forgiven, to all these things, that's how much we value our soul. Glory in Christ and in the church, as I said, in Christ is his saving work, the church is his fruit of this saving work. Let's go to our text. If Christ's work is the root of God's glory and the church believes are a fruit, then unity, the text is about unity, Okay? Maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If Christ is the root and the church is the fruit, then unity between people is the aroma, is the sweet taste of the fruit. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. This is the taste. In Arizona, my best friend's house, and for years I was there, and I would see this basket of fruit, and I like fruit, but I want the crunchy cereal in the morning. And if I get the fruit, I'll eat it. 
I want the sausage and gravy and the biscuits. That's the, and the that's what I want, you know. And so I always looked at the fruit, knowing it was there. And every time I wanted it, I went for something less than. And then one day I came home and I said, "No, so I want a piece of fruit." And I went over to that basket, and it was artificial fruit. <laughs> it was wax. It was like a porcelain. It was really nice. And I was like, "It looks so good." I knew it was there for years. And then time went on, and of course I was on one of those fad diets, and I wanted fruit, and I was like, well, I can't ask. There's no fruit here. It's, it's still there. And So years went on, and I finally wanted fruit, and I said, where's the fruit? He goes, it's over there. I said, but that's plastic. He goes, no, we got rid of that years ago. You see, in my mind, it was still plastic fruit. And that's how church life is for people. Sometimes you get burned in church, and you think, I got a perception of church like, it failed me. You don't, miss the, don't miss the application. I'm giving the application now. The church failed me. The pastor failed me. Or, 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 or someone in the, the leader failed me. Trust me, stick around. I'll fail you somehow or another. I'm a human being. Take my wife. We love one another. But I, she knows what it is I, I fail. But here's the thing. It doesn't mean you give up maintaining the unity of the spirit. To come to church... And all we are is a bunch of bowl of wax fruit that does not give off the aroma and the sweet taste of Christ and forgiving. That's it. Caring. Knowing one another. Nurturing one another. Speaking the truth to one another. Hearing the hard things someone has to tell about. As a pastor, I hear hard things all the time. And no matter what I hear, and no matter how I hear it, i got to say, God, is there truth in here? Are you teaching me something about myself? Are there blind spots in my life? Because that's what we're going to get on to our text now. Verse 1, Paul says this. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. First thing I want to speak about here is Paul's appeal for their unity starts with his own imprisonment. And that's interesting. Paul's desire is for Christians in this church and all Christians to live in harmony with one another. And he has a a strange way of starting. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. He could have said, I, therefore, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he starts starts Ephesians off. Command you. He could have said that. I, Paul, an apostle of the Gentiles and the Jews, I I command you. He doesn't. He appeals to him being a prisoner of the Lord. This touches the heart. And let me give you an analogy. I had a friend of mine who was older than me about 20 years ago and... uh, Hard worker, he, he raised himself up out of a very humble means to become a person of means, but he, he did it by 70, 80, 90 hour work weeks. His children didn't realize how much work the father put in. And they became a little spoiled that they lacked nothing in their life. And But they bickered. I know the family personally. I trained the father, I trained the mother, I trained the son. I, I know the whole family for 10 years. All they did was fight. They had everything. They came from nothing. He told me, he goes, Brian, I long for the day on Friday nights and all we had was $100 and I could buy pizza and we sat around TV in our little house. 
Now they had a big mansion. They all had a Mercedes Benz. They had a pool in the back. There's nothing the family lacked except unity. And then he had a heart attack. And he got sick. And all their eyes were open to this epiphany. He got sick because he worked himself to the bone. He worried himself to the bone. So when he started speaking to him about the issues, he had this skin in the game. What Paul is saying, I got skin in the game. I'm a prisoner because I nurtured you. They arrested me because they didn't like the message that I was given, that Jews and Gentiles are co-heirs with Christ. I am here a prisoner because I put myself out there. I served you night and day. They arrested me because the synagogue of, of the Jews wanted nothing to do with this message that the Gentile was a co-heir with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he got put in jail for it. So when he appeals to his prisoner, they understood he was a prisoner on their behalf. When the father was in the hospital and he says, get right with one another, he has a right to tell them, get right. I birthed you. I slaved for you. I gave you everything I never had. And I end up here. Live in harmony with one another. That's what Paul is saying here. He could have appealed as apostle. He did that in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. But here he's appealing on an emotional level to touch their heartstrings in a very real redemptive way. I'm here because I loved you. That should really get our attention. I can easily go into how endless nights pastors stay up and leaders stay up praying and caring for the sheep. I can tell you not just myself, personal friends that have burnt out in the ministry because they're overwhelmed by pastoring a church. Do you know when I went to, uh, to, to uh, pastor school, if we can call it that, and for a year, for the first two months, they taught me how strong is your marriage? Because the burnout rate of, a, uh, of, of starting a church is enormous. And those who start churches, startup churches, don't usually make it within the first three to five years, they close. And guess what else finishes? Marriages and that pastor's relationship with God. So they were concerned how healthy is my relationship with God and how healthy is my relationship with my wife. Because it's hard work. So when I come up here and I speak the way I'm speaking, I use the text, understand something, because I love you. And I want to see everybody here enjoy the deepest what Christ has for us. And the sleepless nights I've had and John had and things that wake me up in the middle of the night. I can go on and on, but this skin in the game. Paul is appealing as a prisoner because he's there on their behalf. He's in jail because of that. And he goes on to say this. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have called. This Greek word urge is not some kind of passive word. It's not a passive appeal. It's not, oh, oh, please do the best you can. Uh, just to, to have harmony with one another. No, 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 no. This is an earnest appeal to live the life they've been called to live. He's saying this, you must... 
pull yourself together and get on with your life. This is your role. This is your purpose. This is your vocation. Maintain unity in the church at all costs. It's a sinking ship. Satan is against you. Every demon is against you. Politicians are against you. The state is against you. Whatever you do, a house united against itself, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Whatever you do, make it your call in life to live in harmony with one another. That's what he said. I urge you. This all goes to direct our understanding. A misunderstanding in American church today. That church is about my salvation. Are you... I'm saved... I told you, get, get rid of I'm saved. Throw it out of your vocabulary. Get it rid of it out of your theology. We are saved. No one's saved on their own. We're saved together. One soul at a time. This calling that he's being urged is not just any, genuine, uh, no ordinary calling. The word calling always has to do with a vocation, either as a pastor or, or, or a preacher or, or a priest. You're called into the ministry. Don't you know he's made us what? A kingdom of priests to God. We have a calling. We are to maintain this calling. He urges us to live out this calling as co-heirs with Christ. Understand something. It's a twofold appeal over here. One is to the dignity of being a co-heir with Christ. He's not, uh, he's not rebuking them as rebel children that need the rod. He's speaking to them as royalty and as dignity, as princes in the kingdom of God. He's not appealing to lower base nature of get your act together. He's saying you're co-heirs with Christ. I spelled that out to you in chapter 1 and chapter 2 already. Yeah, you were dead in sin one time. And you were a child of wrath. But now you're a co-heir with Christ. He's appealing to the, their royal dignity of what they are. That's what God sees in you and me now. Everything I do, everything John does is to... We, we, we labor that Christ be formed in you. That you know the royal nature and dignity that God bestows upon you. Because when you get that, you respond to life. And you respond to life's difficulties in a different manner. Not as emotional children running around trying to win the war of words all the time. And the calling that we're going to see of maintenance which he spells out now in verse 2 and 3. Listen to this calling. This is house cleaning. This is a spiritual kind of, of, of cleaning the heart. He says this in verse 2. And I'm going to take a moment here, digress. Jackie, do you have verse 2 followed by verse 25 to 32? I have it on one slide on several slides. Okay, I'm going to read verse 2, and then would you go right to verse 25 for me? Okay, so everybody follow with me, because this is Paul's mind now in the whole chapter. All right, so I'm going to start in verse 2 to go right to verse 25. Listen to Paul. With all humility, this is the calling. You ready? 
with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Be angry, sure, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. There, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Understand something about these verses. If you were to read just verse 4-2 on its own, <coughs> Paul is writing because Paul knows human nature. Paul understood what was happening in this church between Gentile believers and Jewish believers. There was bitterness. There was wrath. There was anger. There was clamor. There was slander. There was malice. In verse 1, he appeals to him being a prisoner. But in verse 32, he appeals to God's kindness in Christ. They're really sandwiched in. If you belong to this church and you will listen to this, you are sandwiched in between the Apostle Paul in prison on your behalf and God who gave you Christ. Do you know, know what I'm saying? There's no wiggle room. This is how we maintain the unity that God has given. The Jew and the Gentile 2,000 years ago would have maintained the unity that God bring them both into the church by Christ. And they would maintain this in their relations with each other by forgiving one another, being kind to each other, being compassionate to each other, with all humility and gentleness and patience. They were bearing with one another in love. That's how we maintain. That's the glory of God. I don't want you to miss that. Do you know how God glorifying it is when two saints work out their differences? Do you know how God glorifying is when a husband and wife work out their differences? Do you know how wonderful and great it is when two pastors disagree, but they come together to agree on the glory of God? Do you have any idea? Because understand something about the whole book of the Bible, 66 books. It's all about uniting, bringing unity into a fractured world. Every day of our life, redemption is taking place. Every day of your life, husbands and wives are, 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 are reuniting their hearts together, caring for each other, working out their difficulties, working out their differences, working out their failures, working out their disappointments. Every day, Christians are doing that to the glory of God. Me and my wife were just sharing the other day. If it wasn't for Christ, we would have been divorced a long time ago. I say that very strongly because you know something? There was so much ugliness in our heart that we didn't know about until we got saved. 
Do you not know that the heart has things stored in it that the mind doesn't know about yet? Do you understand there's things that lurk within our depraved hearts that haven't even entered our mind? The things we've gone through, if it wasn't for Christ holding us together, there's no way. Even with Christ, you have to work to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Even with Christ. I'm assuming this is where our anti-church, anti-pastor friend comes from. Some kind of disgruntled parishioner. I'm assuming. I didn't get a chance to speak to him. But instead of... working out differences to maintain the unity of spirit and be a peacemaker, as Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. When you say that, when you think Jesus is talking about police officers? Blessed are the... He's talking about Christians working out their differences. Remember, the church is a test tube of flawed personalities coming together to work it out to work out their salvation in fear and tremble, and it's a corporate thing Paul talks about. It has nothing to do with a personal thing. It's corporate. And when we do that, God is glorified. Because otherwise, if it wasn't for Christ, I could care less about a lot of people. But because of Christ, I actually love that person now. And I'm concerned about that person. I want to hear what they have to say. I want to hear what they're thinking. You know... God didn't abandon this fractured society. But he so loved this fractured society that he gave his only begotten son. Do you know, Christian man and Christian woman, you have no rights of being offended? Did you know that? When you came to Christ, you gave up all these perceived rights to be offended. You, you, you have no rights. They're gone. They're nailed to the cross. When I'm offended and really offended, I gotta get to my knees. I gotta pray for that person. I gotta pray that I can forgive somebody if necessary. I gotta pray to say, God, are you teaching me something here about myself? Are, are there blind spots I need to know about? I gotta honor you. I gotta I gotta bring glory to your name through every challenge and circumstance of every interpersonal relationship. I have to make sure that it's honoring to you. See, God sees that. I don't have to put it to words. He hears my heart. I'm offended. Paul reminds them. Not just he's a prisoner and he has a right to speak the way he's speaking. He could have appealed to be an apostle, but he appealed to being their father in the faith. Listen to me. But at the end, he finally appeals to the greatest appeal any pastor could appeal to. Forgive one another as God and Christ has forgiven you. There's no higher law. There's no greater motivation. That ends the dispute. You can't bring a charge against it. If you're a Christian man and a Christian woman, it's over. You got to surrender your heart to the cross of Christ. Because if we don't, as we read, if we don't, if we allow the sun to go down on our resentments and on our anger, 
we give opportunity to the devil. As I shared before, the devil's like a shark. He can smell blood in the water from a hundred miles away. And he zeroes in. <gasps> Look at Sonship Ministries. Look at the pastor and his wife. They're fighting. Oh, this is great. Let me, let me, just, let me just bask around them and circle around them. Oh, look at this couple. They're fighting. They're Christians. Oh, this is wonderful. He circles and he gets tighter and tighter and tighter. You see, understand something about Paul. Paul understood, as I said already, human nature. Don't, don't miss this. He's writing to maintain the unity of the spirit because he understands human nature doesn't like to maintain unity. We like to have the high ground, the vanguard of morality and, and to think we're better than. We love to judge as something, some kind of morbid self-interest we have in judging someone else or thinking someone's done us wrong and we can, we can hold a charge against them. We can be angry with someone. We probably think we're like God for a moment. But if you want to be like God, as forgive. John Verdi told me about what he heard John MacArthur say, you're never more like God than when you're forgiven. It really is. You know why? It's painful to forgive. But nothing's better than reconciliation. Every day, the church is re- it's reconciliation. Remember what I said? This is house cleaning. This is what Paul does. Okay, we'll finish with verse 3. He says this, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. As we live out verses 2, as I just said, you fulfill verse 3. By being compassionate, forgiving, merciful to one another. As God in Christ has been merciful and compassionate and forgiven to us. When we do that, we're maintaining the unity of the spirit. We're not going to let the sun go down on our anger because Satan's going to come in. The house divided won't stand, so we've got to keep away from him. And Satan hates forgiveness. He hates unity. He hates understanding. He hates compassion. These are things that he has no idea even exist. He hates it. And it says maintain. I want to close with this word. Could you put Genesis chapter 2 15 up? I'm going to give you biblical theology. If you don't understand that discipline. Biblical theology. Please follow with me. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and what? Okay. You see, the Garden of Eden was the temple of the Lord. And he took Adam and eventually Eve and he put them in the garden to work it and to keep it. You know what the word keep means? Maintain. The next time we see that word being used, it's of the priests and the Levites. They were to keep the temple. You see, it's, it's, it's sacred language. Those are the vestments of religion we wear on our heart. Where's the temple of God today? We're the temple. Doesn't Paul teach us that in verse chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6? That the church, this is where God abides. So we maintain it, not by picking up the coffee cup, but I do appreciate if you take your coffee cups when you leave. Because you're not supposed to have them in here anyway. But anyway, follow along with me. We maintain 
the sanctuary by watching over the attitudes of our heart towards each other. God's not concerned about graffiti on the wall. He's not concerned about what the tree looks like outside. He's not concerned about stained glass. Understand, even Solomon knew, the great Solomon and the great temple of Solomon, that when he prayed, he said, he looked at the temple, he said, God, you're too great, you could never dwell in a building made by the hands of man. You see, as high priests now, we're all called a kingdom of priests. Don't miss this. We maintain the unity of the Spirit. We keep the sanctuary of God clean by watching over the inner attitudes we have towards one another. That's biblical theology. Biblical theology is an ongoing revelation of who God is. So if we only take Genesis 1 and 2, it's only a little bit about God. But when we get closer to the cross of Christ, we start seeing who God is more clearly. And we see our role now more clearly, more informed. And we have the Holy Spirit to carry out the teaching of Christ. More could be said. Father, we love you. God, I ask that you help us in the maintenance of this wonderful structure called the church where alone, alone in all the universe, in a hundred billion stars, in a hundred billion different universes, your glory is displayed nowhere else but at the cross of Calvary and the fruit of Calvary, which is us, the church. Your signature is no more clearly seen than in the death of your son and the love and unity that Christians maintain as your son taught us in John 17. Father, I pray that the world notice them by their love for one another. Help us to maintain that which Christ died for. Help us to maintain the unity that the Holy Spirit applies to our heart, Father God. I pray first and foremost for every Christian in here that you deal with the inner attitudes and we be set free. Help us maintain integrity in the heart as princes and co-heirs with Christ. Let us walk in regal dignity, not being swallowed up by the base nature of resentments and anger and fault-finding and malice and slander and, and clamor. But I pray, Father God, that we take the high road always, husbands and wives, Christian brothers and sisters, that we're always forgiving one another as God and Christ has forgiven us. These are our royal clothing that we wear as we maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Go in peace. God bless.